You're listening to the sermon from Sunday morning at The Crossing in Columbia, Missouri. Today, we're continuing our series through the Gospel of Luke. Was Jesus a feminist? Maybe it's not the kind of question you expect to hear asked at a church, but what do you think? How would you answer? Was Jesus a feminist? Maybe you think, well, I don't know how to answer it because there's so many different definitions of, of feminism, right? Like words mean different things to different people. For example, let's take another word. Let's take the word evangelical. The evangelical Christian used to have a biblical or a theological definition. To be an evangelical Christian was to be focused on the cross, to see the Bible as God's word in your life, to to see a life change that Jesus brings, a conversion, and then to want to be busy and active, as busy about building the kingdom of God. So it used to be a biblical theological definition, but what we're seeing now is that that is changing a little bit. There are people who, who consider themselves evangelicals that don't even go to church. Like here's a Pew Research poll showed 27% of self-identified evangelicals seldomly or rarely or never go to church. So instead of having a biblical definition, a theological meaning, it's almost kind of a cultural or political meaning. So if you ask me if I'm an evangelical, what I would do is I go, well, you define the term and then I'll tell you if I fit that or not, right? And maybe you feel that way about certain words in your life, like labels that people give you. Are you a conservative or progressive? Well, you define it, and then I'll tell you whether I fit that definition or not. It's not that I'm afraid of letting you know what I think. It's just that I don't want to be misunderstood. So we come back then and ask the question, is Jesus a feminist? And you go, well, it kind of depends on what the word means. But if you just go look up feminism in the dictionary, like the Merriam-Webster definition of feminism is that a feminist advocates for women's rights based on the equality of the sexes. Well, if that's the definition, then I think it would be pretty confident to say that Jesus was a feminist. You go, well, I didn't expect to hear that because I've always been told that Christianity and w- w- oppressed women or tried to control women or that Christianity thought less of women than it does of men. But that doesn't square with the Bible or with church history. Because what you see when you look at the Bible is that no one has been better for women than Jesus. No person has. And no religion has been better for women than Christianity. I mean, it is undeniable that women are treated better, have more opportunities, more rights, more freedoms in countries with Christian roots than in countries without them. I mean, just look at the world around us. And you find that that's not a coincidence, right? Everywhere Christianity has gone, it has elevated the status of women. Here's what's unarguable. In the ancient world, there were no feminists. If you said that men and women were equal, you would have gotten a confused look from people. They would have said, well, on what basis could you say that? Because they always thought of women as inferior. The Greeks, the great Greek thinkers, they saw that women were on average physically weaker than men and concluded that therefore they were also emotionally and mentally weaker. Plato, the great Greek philosopher, 
said that men's were, men were created directly by the gods, but women were cowardly and unjust men. Women were cowardly and unjust men. Aristotle, his disciple, was even worse, if that's possible. He said women were deformed men, that women were irrational and weak and passive and unable to think abstractly and therefore constrained to the domestic sphere. But at the heart of Christianity is this countercultural idea. This countercultural idea that regardless of sex, regardless of, of race, regardless of ability, regardless of anything, every human being is of inestimable worth because they are created in the image of God. I just don't think we understand how profoundly it has changed our world. It's all rooted back in the first chapter of Genesis. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God created human beings in his image, male and female, and together he gave them the responsibility to rule the world, to govern the world under his authority. This was... It was crazy in, in the ancient world because they thought maybe only the kings, the pharaohs were created in the image of God, only the powerful. And this says, no, every human being. Well, how about only men? No, every human being. God created them in his image, male and female. This idea revolutionized the world and its roots are in the Bible because it wasn't just the Greeks that devalued women. It was the Romans also. Here's an excerpt from a letter that a Roman soldier who's at the front wrote back to his family, to his wife. I'm asking you and begging you to take care of the little child and when we are paid, in other words, when he gets money out on the front, I will send it to you right away. If you happen to be pregnant again, if it's a boy, leave it. If it's a girl, throw it out. Why? Because in the Roman world, women weren't valued. You didn't want a little girl. It's kind of like China today that has this imbalance between men and women because in the China one policy, one child policy, they would abort girls. Well, that's the same thing that was happening in the Roman Empire except it wasn't abortion, it was just infanticide. They didn't want girls. And so you had this huge gender imbalance inside the Roman Empire. There are a lot more men than women. Tom Holland, the, the fantastic historian of the ancient world, a couple of quotes from his book, Dominion. Sex was nothing if not an exercise of power. As captured cities were to the swords of the legions, so the bodies of those used sexually were to the Roman man. In Rome, men no more hesitated to use slaves and prostitutes to relieve themselves of their sexual needs as they did to use the side of the road as a toilet. So if you'd gone in the ancient world and had this idea that, that women had equal rights to men, they would have absolutely laughed at you because they lived in a male-dominated world where might makes right. It was a survival of the fittest at the expense of the vulnerable. And into that world steps a man named Jesus, and he changes everything. 
Jesus is having a conversation with this powerful religious man. And in the context of the conversation, he asks this guy a question. It's in Luke 7, 44. He just asks this man, do you see this woman? Now, the woman that Jesus is asking this powerful religious figure about is a woman that this man had been talking about. He had been judging her. He had been condemning her. But he had not seen her. He had not seen her as one created in the image of God. He had not seen her as one who is worthy of dignity and respect. He had not seen her as a person of equal value to himself. He had not seen her as someone that God had given skills and talents and and an intellect and, and a calling to employ those in the world. Now see, this powerful religious man had not seen this woman the way Jesus had. Jesus launched a revolution of how women were treated and thought about. And it all started with Jesus himself. Because every woman that he encounters, he treats with dignity and respect, and he insists his followers do the same. Do you know the longest private conversation, one-on-one conversation recorded in the Gospels is between Jesus and a woman? You can read about it in John chapter four. And when you read about this this private conversation between Jesus and this woman, they did not have a conversation about domestic responsibilities. What they talked about were deep theological truths. Jesus was not afraid to be countercultural. He didn't try to, to abide by the worldview of the first century. So they believed that that men could be promiscuous and that women must be chaste. But Jesus said, I refuse to uphold those kind of double standards. Instead, he called husbands and wives to both be faithful in marriage. And then Christianity went even further, saying inside of a marriage, that sexual relationship between husband and wife must be mutual. Because wherever Jesus went, he gave equal standing to women. Which kind of makes the whole Handmaid's Tale, right? The Hulu TV series that was based on the Margaret Atwood novel, The Handmaid's Tale. It made it just like bizarro world because in that TV story, in the show that became really popular and uh, people talked about it a lot, the whole idea behind it is that fundamentalist Christians have taken over the world and now they are enslaving women to have sex with their masters. But that's the exact thing that Jesus forbade. That's the exact thing that Christianity put it into. That's the exact thing that it outlawed. Because what Christianity taught, of course, rooted in Jesus, is that Christian husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church. And that if your wife was physically weaker, that was not an opportunity to dominate her, but instead to honor her. So was Jesus a feminist? Is it right to say that? Well, again, if the definition of feminism is the advocacy of women's rights for women based on the equality of sexes, then I don't know how you could possibly read the Gospels or read the rest of the New Testament and have any other conclusion, but of course he was. And all that sets us up for where we are in our sermon series through the book of Luke. We're just gonna cover a few verses today. We're gonna start in Luke chapter eight, verses one to three. Said after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12, that's the disciples, right? The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. 
Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. There's so much to see in those verses, but let's start with this. Did you notice that the 12 disciples were uh, separate from the rest of Jesus' followers? Now, Jesus' 12 disciples were 12 men. And so people have said, well, look, Jesus chose 12 men to be his kind of inner disciples. So therefore, that must show that Christianity favors men, that Christianity prioritizes men, or that Christianity has kind of a male-dominated flavor. Mm, Not so fast. Why did Jesus pick 12 disciples? I mean, why not 10 or 13? It wasn't random. It wasn't coincidence. You might remember in the story of the Old Testament that Jacob had 12 sons and each of those 12 sons became one of the 12 tribes of Israel and together the 12 tribes of Israel were the people of God. And so now when Jesus comes and he chooses 12 Jewish men to be his disciples, what he's signaling is that he is reconstituting or restarting the people of God, a new people of God. But if you actually pay attention to what's happening in the Gospel of Luke, you recognize that these 12 male disciples were not the only disciples that Jesus had. Not all of his disciples were men. Luke chapter 6. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 out of them, who he also designated apostles. So you see, he's got this larger group of uh, disciples. And out of that larger group, he chose these 12 men to signal that he's reconstituting the people of God. But now what we're finding in Luke chapter eight is that of this larger group of disciples that were following Jesus, a lot of them were women. We're told the, the, the names of three of the women. One is Susanna, and we don't know much, if anything at all, really about her. But we do know a lot about another one that he mentions, and that's Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene might be the woman outside of Mary, the mother of Jesus, that is the most well-known woman in all the Bible. Her her last name was not uh, Magdalene, right? That's the town she was from. She was from the city of Magdala. She was called Mary Magdalene to distinguish her from all the other Marys. Mary was a very common uh, first century Jewish name. I think there are six Marys in the Gospels. You may have heard, because it's kind of a widely circulated story, that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, but there's nothing in the Bible that would tell you that. What we did see in Luke 8 was that Jesus had cast seven demons out of her, that there was some kind of oppression that Jesus had relieved her from, released her from, healed her from. We know that Mary Magdalene followed Jesus all the way to the cross. She was standing near the cross when he was crucified. We know that on the, on the Sunday, she went out to the tomb to bring spices. We know that she saw the stone was rolled away and that Mary Magdalene was the very first person to see the encountered or to encounter the risen Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. See, it's clear that Jesus had changed Mary Magdalene's life. Luke tells us about another woman. This is Joanna. 
And we're told that she's the wife of Chusa, who had a prominent position. He was a key position in Herod's uh, kingdom, like in his, in his cabinet. He was Herod's manager. It's likely that both Chusa and uh, Joanna were both believers. And it's possible that they used their relationship with King Herod to tell him about Jesus, because we read this in Luke 23. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. Maybe that's because Joanna and Chusa had been talking to Herod about Jesus. We know they had inside information being a part of the inner part of of King Herod's court. So what we see in Luke 13 wouldn't have surprised them. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else because Herod wants to kill you. No surprise to Joanna and Chusa. They knew that Herod had it out for Jesus. But you get that it's not ideal if you're Joanna, if your husband's boss wants to kill this teacher that you're following around and supporting. Well, I think what we're supposed to understand from Joanna's life is that she was a courageous and powerful woman who gave up her status and privilege to be a Jesus follower. And she too followed him to the very end. She too was there at the crucifixion. She too was there to see the empty tomb and the resurrected Jesus. Let's go back to Luke 8 again. They've given these names, Mary and and Joanna and Susanna. And then notice it says, and many others. There are many other women. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So there are many of the disciples were women and they were financially supporting Jesus's ministry. Have you ever wondered, I mean, how did these guys make it? I mean, they're just kind of going around from town to town preaching. I mean, how did they eat? You know, you know Jesus fed the 5,000, kind of did this miracle. Maybe he did that. Like, hey, guys want lunch? Here, poof, there's a lunch, right? That he just kind of spoke it into creation. That's not how it went down, right? I mean, Jesus did miracles like that, but the normal way of him providing for his team was through the generosity of these women, They're the ones that funded Jesus's ministry. They had a lot of means, a lot of wealth. It's interesting. Take us back to this verse we looked at a couple weeks ago that I know frustrated some of you. We'll just look at it again. It's Luke 18. Jesus said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And what I heard this week is, well, man, It seems unfair to the rich, doesn't it? Why is it hard for rich people to become believers? And I think what we saw a couple weeks ago and we just see here today in this own passage is that's because that wealth gives us an illusion of self-sufficiency. Did you catch that? Wealth gives us an illusion of self-sufficiency. So it makes it hard to depend on Jesus when you think you are self-sufficient. It's self-sufficiency that keeps us out of the kingdom of God. So when they hear Jesus say this, let's go to the next verse, verse 26. They respond by saying then, who then can be saved? Like, we look up to rich people. We think they've got it. If they can't be saved, then who could? In verse 27, Jesus responds by saying, well, what's impossible with man is possible with God. See, it's impossible for anyone rich or poor to save themselves, but what's impossible with man is possible with God. God can open the eyes of rich or poor person's heart so that they see their desperate need for Jesus. He can break through the illusion of wealth. 
So we see how much we need to depend on Jesus. That's what had happened to these women, some of whom had great wealth, is that they had seen their need for him. And then in response to Jesus calling them to follow him, they used their wealth to further his kingdom. Do you think they ever regretted that? Like as they spent their wealth funding Jesus' ministry, do you think there was ever a moment in their life where they go, gosh, I wish I hadn't done that. I could have used a new pair of shoes. I don't think so. I don't think we either will, will regret our generosity to Jesus' kingdom. We keep reading through Luke and we keep going through it in the next several months. What we're going to see is that this group of women, they kept following Jesus. They followed him to the, to the cross. They followed him to the tomb. They watched him be buried there. They saw him resurrected and they met the risen Jesus. And then it's these women that went and told the disciples that Jesus was alive. And they set a pattern that other women and men followed. Let's go to Romans 16. Romans 16. So this is the end of maybe one of Paul's most famous letters, the book of Romans. And he says this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Sincrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. So Paul's got this ministry team and one of the people on his ministry team is Phoebe because there are both men and women on Paul's ministry team. And he's in Corinth and he's writing this letter to Rome and he's got to get it there, but there's no postal service. So it has to be hand-delivered. And it's not an easy track. It's pretty dangerous to go from Corinth to Rome. And so he says, who am I going to trust this to? And he picks Phoebe because she's one of the people that he has most confidence in. And she delivers the, the letter to the Romans to the church in Rome. And she would have been one of the first people, maybe the first person, to read that letter and then to interpret it. To say, hey, Paul wanted me to let you know that he really was emphasizing this. Like, this is a really big deal. And then you saw that she was called a benefactor. See, that's like a patron. That's somebody who, who, who funds stuff. Like, uh, maybe you're a benefactor of the arts. You fund it. And Paul is saying, she funded my ministry. Here's another wealthy woman who's using what God has given her to further the kingdom. And it causes us to have to consider, how could I use whatever gifts God has given me to fund his kingdom? Have you considered that? Like, what has God given you? Because she's an example of that. And her example causes us to be motivated to wisely steward whatever gifts he's given us. Scholars say that two-thirds of the early church was made up of women. And remember the gender imbalance, that there's a lot more men in the Roman Empire than women, but two-thirds of the church are women. Why do you think they wanted to become Christians? I mean, Christians didn't have any legal status. They, they were social and political outsiders. They were despised by most of the culture. No one forced these women to become Christians. And yet when you go back and you read the earliest sources, what you find are women doing all kinds of stuff. I mean, they're being persecuted for their faith. From the earliest Christian sources, we know that a lot of women were hosting uh, churches in their house. They were caring for the poor and the imprisoned. They were missionaries. And of course, we've already seen they're using their wealth to support the, the, the ministry. 
But that's not just in history, that's today too. Over half of the American church, over half of the worldwide church is, are women. Why are women still flocking to Christianity? Jesus. Jesus. Because he sees them. Because he respects them. Because he gives them value. Because he empowers them. Because he calls them to be a part of his kingdom. And so what, what lesson is Luke 8, 1 to 3? What takeaway is there for you and me? Well, I don't know, because we're all come from so many different places. I mean, maybe what you need to hear is that the church has not always lived up to Jesus' calling. Not our church or any other church. And unfortunately, there have been churches who have hurt women, maybe even our church. But churches have hurt women because they have not lived up to what Jesus called churches to be. That, that churches are sinful institutions made up of sinful people, just like everything else. And sometimes, in the name of Christ, churches have hurt women. And if that's you, I can't undo it, and I can't fix it, but I can tell you I'm sorry. I talked to a woman yesterday in the uh, parking lot at Schnook. She approached me. She'd been watching online, came once with a friend. And she'd been hurt in her past. And she was just telling me, she's not sure, can I go here? Is it gonna be safe? Can I come back? I want to. And I invited her, so please come. We, I know the people will welcome you. And maybe she did, I don't know. Maybe you're here now. But maybe you just need to hear, I'm sorry. The church hasn't lived up and been faithful to the way Jesus called us to be. Or maybe you're a man here and you've been using the Bible, you've been using Christianity to control or manipulate or be abusive to your wife, to your girlfriend. It's out of line. It's wrong. And it's out of step with Jesus. And you're misusing Jesus' name to do harm. And you need to repent and you need to get help. Maybe you're a woman and, and you're here wondering, does Jesus see me? Maybe you have a, a daughter and you want to know that, that the church values her, that Jesus loves her. Or maybe in this topsy-turvy world we live in where everything is upside down, now you're sitting there and you've maybe got young boys. And it seems like boys are the ones who are being overlooked now in some way. I just want you to know this. Wherever you are, wherever you're vulnerable, Jesus sees you and he cares about you and he loves you. That Jesus isn't overlooking you. That there's room in his kingdom. See, in our kingdom, in our world, it's about power. It's about status. It's about wealth. It's about who you know. And Jesus has turned it all upside down in his kingdom. Whether you're abled or disabled, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're black or white or Asian or Latino, or whatever you are, Jesus sees you and he loves you and he cares about you. And he calls you to be a part of his kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, I just pray for any person, but specifically for any woman who's been hurt by the church. And I pray that you would know her and give her the courage to know that she is loved, that you see her and you want the best for her and that you are safe for her. 
I pray for everybody here, Father, who feels like they have been overlooked or taken advantage of. I pray that they would know that you, Jesus, see them and love them. And there's a place for them in your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand to receive God's blessing. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you believe the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. Have a great Sunday. We hope this sermon was encouraging. You can always visit our website, thecrossingchurch.com, for more sermons and resources.